0: Welcome to the Healthcare Quality Cast, where we spotlight today's most exciting and inspiring quality professionals within the healthcare industry. Our podcast will dive into the career journeys of leaders that work daily to improve quality, safety, and service outcomes for patients, their family members, and their communities at large. Our mission is to provide motivation and direction to our listeners, encouraging you all to continue your efforts in improving the overall quality of healthcare. And now, your host, Jarvis Gray.
1: Quality people, welcome back to episode number 59 of the Healthcare Quality Cast, powered by the Quality Coaching Company. I am your host, Jarvis Gray, and I'm excited to bring you today's guest because given the global pandemic with COVID-19, what better quality leader to highlight than one that is an infectious disease physician? Our guest today is Dr. David Priest, and David serves as the Senior Vice President, Chief Safety, Quality, and Epidemiology Officer with Novant Health. David comes to our show as a Demon Deacon of Wake Forest and also completed his graduate and postgraduate work at the University of Florida and Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Prior to serving as a Senior Vice President, David also served as past Medical Director, Infection Prevention and Antimicrobial Stewardship Leader, lead clinician, and also has over 20 articles and research publications under his belt. Here in episode number 59, David starts our show with a leadership quote that puts us in the mindset of hashtag what could possibly go wrong. David takes us on a journey through his career path, starting as an Eagle Scout and leading up to his current role as a senior level healthcare quality safety leader. David shares a career dark moment story connected with being a physician administrative leader and navigating the bureaucratic branches of healthcare to implement quality improvement initiatives. We go off script to dig in deep around opportunities for healthcare organizations to become more agile and ways to create a culture of winning. In a show loaded with sports analogies, David shares with us a vision on how he creates successful teams just like the pros. We get to explore some of the incredible efforts that David's organization is building around leadership diversity. David spotlights the benefits of AI and what it can bring for the healthcare industry. David gives a big shout out to the guardian angels within his organization that keeps patients safe daily. And he shares his best career advice centered on the fact that talent is overrated. David, I am honored and grateful for the time and knowledge that you dedicated to our podcast and audience. Given the current happenings with COVID-19, I hope that you are truly in your element now considering the increased focus around infectious disease and enhanced needs for quality, safety and accurate data. Quality people, I hope that you enjoyed today's episode with David and please be sure to reach out and connect with him via LinkedIn. As you listen to this episode, I pray that you all remain safe, remain calm, and please, if you're going to spread anything, just let it be some positive feedback about this podcast with your colleagues so that we can continue to grow our community of quality people. Take care, everyone, and we will see you next week when we return with another quality guest. Thank you for joining in on another episode of the Healthcare Quality Cast. And today I'm here with Dr. David Priest. David, are you ready to share with some quality people?
0: I'm ready to go, Jarvis. Excited to be here.
1: All right, wonderful. Thank you so much again for plugging in with our show, with our audience. And would we'll love to start off with question number one. And for this, I would love for you to share um, any positive um, in, in your favor, excuse me, leadership quote or mindset that you can share with our audience, because we always like to start the show with positive affirmations to really get going. So I would love to learn that and maybe also learn how do you apply it on a daily basis?
0: Sure, you know I think um, for me, it's really a mindset. Rather than give a, give you a quote, I, I thought we'd mention a mindset today. And, and I, I this has come to mind as I uh, see social media and things on the internet. I don't know if you've noticed in recent years, there's an internet meme called uh, hashtag what could possibly go wrong or hashtag what could go wrong you know wcgw okay
1: not familiar with that one
0: well it's it's, uh you know look it up it's a meme usually and when you see that what could possibly go wrong it's often accompanied by a video that includes someone trying to do something incredibly dangerous that leads to you know horrific complications so it's you know it's a guy uh, who's deciding to uh, use a chainsaw standing on a stack of cardboard boxes or you know, something where you see the opening picture and you say, this is going to go incredibly. Um, and so there's almost this meme. It's, it's, you know, it's funny. I've seen it on Reddit and other social media sites, but it's almost this idea that you're optimistic and basically Murphy's law is about to be triggered. Um, and, you know, I, Sometimes I laugh at those things. I think, well, hopefully this person is okay and they weren't seriously injured, and this happened a while ago, so maybe I'm justifying laughing at, at their uh, misfortune. But um, I, I kind of think to myself, you know, when you're in safety and quality, you're also thinking about hashtag what could possibly go wrong, and um, you know, I'm trying to encourage our healthcare system to think like that. Right. So are we anticipating things that are happening a mile away? Do we come across a situation where it's pretty obvious something's going to go wrong and, you know, the hashtag would apply? Um, and, and you see that when a safety event occurs, you know, we, you see, I was trying to think of examples of where, um, you know, if our team members, are we anticipating what could possibly go wrong? You know, if we have an older patient who we're discharging to a skilled nursing facility, and we say to them, why don't you call and make your follow-up appointment? You know, what could go wrong there? A lot of things could go wrong, right? What if we have a young, uninsured patient we hand a prescription to in an emergency room for an expensive inhaler? You know, what could go wrong? Uh, What if we have a patient with severe rheumatoid arthritis and affects their hands, and we're asking them to care for a wound at home? Um, What if we got a patient who's got a transportation um, issue and we say you need to go across town to get this x-ray right so there you can, you can imagine all these scenarios in safety and quality that would be you know what could go wrong and it's it's really you know from our standpoint we try to have a the old uh, preoccupation with failure um, and making sure we're breaking down silos I think in modern healthcare, everything is can be very siloed and I think those silos create gaps where you know, patients and team members tend to fall through. And I, I was trying to figure out why, you know, why has this happened? And I think part of it is um, there's an increasing tendency for things to get siloed that's corresponded with really the increasing degree of medical complexity and medical specialization, right? So as we get more and more specialized and we do our little thing and then we expect the patient to make it over to the next silo. Um, and so I think you combine that with, you know, the loss of societal safety nets, hospitals being asked to do things that weren't in the traditional scope of healthcare in the past. Um, and so I think all of that's to say that our mindset and uh, our healthcare system is to say, we have to constantly say what could go wrong for this patient and we've got to intervene for that.
1: Well, I, I love the mindset there, David. Um, so for me growing up personally, my mother used to always say, plan for the worst, hope for the best. And so that, that hashtag, what could go wrong, almost takes me to that mindset. Um, and, and I'm excited because it, it kind of gives me the mindset that you guys are on that high reliability journey that a lot of healthcare organizations are on nowadays, which is also that, that focus, the what could go wrong, that preoccupation with failure. So um, that's exactly where that quote takes me as, as we get the show started. Yeah, Absolutely. Perfect. Well, I appreciate that. And I'm going to move you into the next question, um, David, because as I scanned through your CV, um, you know, looked at your LinkedIn profile, um, you are, uh, again, maybe kind of a jack of all trades as I started trying to really dissect like different angles to talk with you today about. But um, we'd love for you to share with our quality people what is your current role, um, your professional background, and how did you kind of get into this career path? And and I'll spotlight that by, again, just highlighting your backgrounds with quality, patient safety, epidemiology. You're a trained physician by background as well, so um, not the, the common character we tend to get on this show. So again, another one of the reasons I'm so excited to have you, but uh, I'm just going to stop talking and, again, love to learn how did you pull all of that together into your current career path.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. And I, you know, um, as I think about that, probably a lot of your listeners come from a whole bunch of different backgrounds and sometimes we arrive at similar places coming on different paths. But my path was, uh, I went to medical school at Wake Forest, um, did internal medicine residency and decided I wanted to do infectious disease. And I, I still see patients, which, um, is important for me as one as I love it. Um, I think it keeps me in the game. My, my partners jokingly, jokingly call me a suit, um, but I, I think it, it helps me relate to what's happening with our electronic health record and what our, our physicians and um, APPs have to deal with on a daily basis. And um, so I do, I do infectious disease because I, I love the subject matter. Um, my only concern was I wasn't smart enough to do it, right? My medical heroes were infectious disease docs. And I thought, good golly, these guys are on mountaintops, you know, and will I ever get there? I still wonder if, I, if I'm smart enough to do it. Um, but I, I did pure clinical medicine for a big chunk of my career and I'm kind of mid-career. I think, you know, some people end up in safety and quality at the end of their career. I've done it more mid-career and part of it was, um, I've just been a lifelong learner um, and I'd like to read and um, I decided to go back and get a master's in public health from the University of Florida, uh, started that in 2014, and it took me a while. I said, you know, I'm just going to take, even if I take one class, I'm going to do that and see what happens. And I enjoyed it. And about that time, our organization had a need for someone to do um, system-wide infection prevention and antimicrobial stewardship. And so that was my first kind of, it kind of was lining up perfectly with my master's in public health work. And so, I kind of slid into that role not expecting to do that. I still saw patients, but I had this protected administrative time. And then, you know, over time, it was just um, I got interested in the work. Um, I had somebody at a conference tell me one time, you know, physicians go into safety and quality. Some of the best ones to do that are infectious disease docs. And I hope that's true of me. I think ID doctors tend to. Be tedious, detailed people. We have a natural connection with hospital acquired infections and some of that safety work. And so you, you start to interact with people, you know, in the field. Um, and, and hopefully I bring a physician's perspective to it. Um, I think one of the big advantages to being a physician in these roles is is really to help with messaging. I mean so much of what we do has to be messaged to providers. Um, and I think when it comes from somebody they see as one of their own, it's helpful. So I'm on a journey, I've been in this uh, I'm the um, the SVP chief safety and quality officer for Novant Health. And I'm, you know, I'm on the journey like everybody else is. And I've been in this current role a little less than a year so. I'm learning. I think some people think, well, you just, you just already know it because you're a physician. And that's not true at all. Um, there's even a difference between infection prevention and clinical infectious disease. So um, I, I try to take all of that experience and just bring what I bring to the table. And all, everyone on our team brings something different. And um, that's just been my role so far.
1: Well, David, I'll, I'll definitely share with you. So I'm a personal fan. Anytime we get physicians, you know, moving into that formal quality patient safety type of role. Um, I, I am excited to share with you at least, uh, you are our first official infectious disease physician <laughs> or person in general. Um, so that's a first. And, um, again, just from doing my research on you ahead of time, um, you're also our first scout leader. So, um, so many of the first, uh, it looks like from your CV, you may have had a, a background in Boy Scouts or uh, I Eagle was Scouts. was Eagle Scout. Eagle Boy, Scouts. you've your homework, <laughs>
0: Jarvis. So I forgot about that. But you, the thing about that
1: is um,
0: I've interviewed for a lot of positions and medical school and fellowships and residency. I did fellowship at Vanderbilt. The question I get asked the most in meetings wasn't what research were you involved in, but I see you were an Eagle Scout in 1988 or something. <laughs> that, that has benefited me um, for many, many years. So um, thanks for noticing
1: that. No, well, uh, I have a, a five, soon to be six-year-old son, and I'm I'm kind of at that point now, looking at the scouts for him. So when I saw it in your profile, I was like, "Oh, Eagle Scouts." So. Uh, so, you know,
0: they really promote leadership, you know, now they, you know, the scouting is open to um, boys and girls and so there's a lot of great lessons I learned in scouting about leadership and uh, that have really helped me all along the way.
1: All right, wonderful. Well, it, it seems to absolutely, again, maybe be playing into a lot of the, the leadership work you're doing. I know you say you're only a year or so into your current role, but Um, again, it's the place to be as, you know, physician leaders. It it was just something, again, that stood out to me personally, and I was excited to see. So um, thank you for highlighting um, so much of your background and career path. Um, David, we're going to move you into our next question. And this is one of those questions that I I, I definitely get sensitive with um, for talking with physicians, because I'd love for you to maybe take this Truly from your healthcare leadership point of view, more so than maybe your clinical um, background, because I know those can be very sensitive topics, but um, this next question, I would love for you to take us on a journey in your career path that you would probably consider to be one of your worst, but walk us through the moment, um, share with us the story and definitely share with us any of the details and thoughts and considerations you went through as you tried to turn that moment around.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think um, there are probably a couple of things I could talk about. Um, and I don't know if there's a single worst moment. I think you learn a lot of hard lessons early on when you, when you move into leadership roles around safety and quality. And I think part of that is the, the hard knocks you can take if you don't, if you're trying to understand and learn how to develop and implement change, say, in a large healthcare system. And so, you know, when you're thrown into that for the first time, you think, oh, you know, here's something we need to do. I'll just tell everyone we need to do that and it'll happen. And um, either probably, maybe there may be people listening to this podcast who chuckle at that, either because they did that or, um, or you know, they, they can relate to that. From my standpoint, you, you know, for instance, we had an initiative. The very first thing I wanted to do in our organization was one... It was an issue that basically everyone would agree on. It was going to save money. It was going to help patients. It was some unnecessary things we were doing. I didn't talk to a single person who was opposed to it. But the process of getting that implemented in a hospital system with 15 hospitals and 560 ambulatory clinics and 30,000 team members um, was daunting. And I thought, okay, I got to take it to this. And a lot of acronyms committees, right, So that I didn't know about. And so you have this frustration of, you know, in the clinical world, it's patient needs an antibiotic, we're gonna prescribe it today and get this fixed. That's not how it works on, on the safety and quality side and, and, the, and what is the bureaucracy of healthcare systems. They all have this. And, you know, sometimes the clinician's personality is not gonna work in the administrative world for this reason, because things don't happen quickly. You have to build consensus, you have to get buy-in, you have to understand what all the acronym committees do. And then you run into people who, you know, I don't, I think they mean well, but process is their end goal. It becomes, the the process becomes more important than the actual result. And so there was a lot of like, you can't do that. Don't you know, we don't do that. We've never done it that way. This is how we've always done it. Um, And those can be pretty discouraging times. Uh, Even now I have those times where I think this is best for patient safety and quality, but you, you run into these things that you didn't anticipate. Um, and it speaks to I think healthcare systems need to be more nimble. You know, I grew up in a military household, and so my apologies to any army brats out there. I'm a Marine Corps brat, and you know, I always give the analogy: the Marine Corps tends to be a little bit in, historically, maybe not anymore, a little bit more nimble than the Army, right? And sometimes the healthcare bureaucracy felt like the Army. We had been designed to wage a land war in Europe or something, and in, in real, we needed to be more like the modern military able to react and change to things, you know, know, more quickly. So I'm not saying we run over people in the name of progress, but some of those hard lessons early on was something that seemed very obvious to me. You have to message that and operationalize that in a way that you get buy in. And that's hard, right. When you're first starting out. I think the other thing for me is I, I struggle even now at times with not taking results personally, you know, um, if we don't reach a hospital acquired infection goal, I take that home with me. Um, and I want to care about my work, but you also have to realize how complicated these problems are. And I, I tell people, you know, biological systems don't really care about your quality goals. And so you end in these situations where maybe you're not getting where you want it to be, or now you got to present a metric that you thought you could get to, and you're not going to get to do, to that. And you got to explain that to a board of trustees or a CEO. Um, and I, you know, I'll wake up at three in the morning pondering these things. And I think you, it's not, it's a good thing that you care, but you can take it too far. You got to get, a, you got to get a break from it. Um, and, and so, you know, progress is not always this linear thing. You, you gotta, um, you know, protect yourself and, and, and not be so invested that you can't function if you don't get to where, where, where you want to be. I mean, it's, it's such healthcare is so complex. There are so many forces involved um, that, that, that's the other issue I can sometimes struggle with.
1: Well, so David, I'm, you know, kind of taking some notes on a few of the things you said, and I, I love your takeaway first around the the fact that healthcare is not the most agile, uh, industry or, our our organizations aren't always as agile as they need to be. Um, your second point there about, you know, just how you take home some of that, Um, those opportunities when you haven't really won. Um, So I'm kind of summarizing that second point you made around a culture of winning. Um, So for me, I I have a sports background. I uh, was fortunate enough to play um, football for a good chunk of my career in high school and a few years in college and, you know, kind of coming into my professional career path with a sports culture or a sports mindset. I, I always try to bring some of those things into the work I do as a quality improvement professional now. And that's, you know, so agility when you think about what sports teams do, you know, we, we call timeouts, we change our plays up, we go, you know, into the halftime um, break and then we come back with adjustments to our plans. We don't always do that, you know, in healthcare specifically, um, but strategically within organizations. And then the other part around winning to me is the fact that we have scoreboards that show us, you know, the time ticking down. It shows us the the, the touchdowns and the uh, field goals and things that we're converting on to show success real time. Again, in our day-to-day healthcare world, we don't always see that. So um, just wanted to maybe pitch another question, dig a little bit deeper, at least on the thoughts you shared. Would you have any examples or just a vision for you know how do we take basic principles like that agility developing a culture of winning and apply that into our day-to-day lives
0: yeah absolutely i think sports analogies are great too um military and sports analogies often come up in these situations absolutely (laughs) you know i think you know for me as i um it's, it's an art to come up with metrics and dashboards, right? I mean, we do that a lot in healthcare. We try to condense some very complex issue into a box that we're either going to turn green, yellow, or red. We're big with those around here. We want that box to be green. Um, and it's artificial, right? Um, we can make a lot of progress. Even if you don't meet a metric, you may make tremendous progress towards that. And it's really a art, right, to pick metrics, that you start at a place you don't want to be you pace it in such a way that in the time you've allotted to improve you improve at the correct pace at the end of it you've achieved your goal right sometimes we pick long-term goals where we get to goal super quickly because what it took was just a change in our electronic health record and then we have other goals that we never quite get to It's, it's really an art even to pick the metrics and the goals and so I think it's know even in your everyday life as you're as you're looking at these kind of things is cut yourself some slack be optimistic understand like you said that you may have to change on the fly um and at the end of the day i think if you keep the patient at the forefront and um then then the right things are going to happen um and you know so i try to apply all that the other thing is celebrate right i think we don't celebrate enough you know i we have a call that we do with some of our executive team members that support some clinical work. And, you know, I can't remember the exact issue, but I, I was just presenting to the group that we hit this major milestone around one of our goals. Like, it was a big, like, you know, hundreds of people involved. And, and like, I mentioned it, and literally, it's just like, oh, that's interesting. Let's go on to the next issue, right? There's not even a pause. And one of our uh, physician executive team members, Pam Oliver, said, oh, time out we're not moving on with this meeting until we acknowledge what was just told to us. You know, I think we get so caught up in the next goal, the next metric and the thing for next year, and we got to hit this thing. We don't, we don't celebrate enough. Um, and I think that's when people get ground down a little bit when we don't say, you know, even if we don't quite get to the metric, if, if the goal was 50% improvement and we got to 30% improvement, that is something to be proud of um, as hard as these problems are and the limited resources often teams have and, all the work that goes into it, you know, take time to celebrate.
1: So I, I think you're 100% right in terms of the celebration as well. Um, I, I like to, the, the teams that I'm working with now, I like to call them take a victory lap, right? That's that classic uh, track and field analogy. Now it's switching to another, um, <laughs> another example, but we got to take victory laps. So I, I love that additional point. And that that might be the key once we start celebrating more and that, that feel good feeling comes out of it. Maybe that'll give us more um, confidence around calling the timeouts to be more agile, to focus on, you know, the real time successes that are going on. So wonderful. Next question I have for you, David, Um, I I would love to maybe change pace a little bit, but um, pick the conversation up with you giving our quality people, our audience uh, a tip, tool or tactic that you found works very well for building those intimate connections on project teams that you work with. Um, but share with us what it is and how do you apply it?
0: Yeah, so I, I think one of the big things that I try to do, and, and again, I, um, I'm i fairly new to this work. I mean, I've led different teams in other settings and those kind of things, but um, we really, on my teams, I try to eliminate or um, really minimize power gradients um, we don't want power gradients between our physicians and other team members in our in our organization. And I think the same thing is true of our teams. We're tight, we try to be title-free in meetings. Um, I, I, I'm David in those meetings. I'm not Dr. Priest because um, we, we don't want the sense that there are power gradients. We all bring something important. I, I don't think that you know, our organizational structure is there for me to – wield some kind of power over other team members. It's really to create a logical process for getting work done. And so hopefully that empowers our teams, builds those connections. Um, they don't see me as intimidating um, or, you know, the one in charge or something. Um, we really just have certain roles so the work, you know, goes through it. And I, and I hope that builds the team, right? I told people in my clinical office and I told my administrative team the same thing. I would love for our teams to be like successful NFL coaching staffs, right? So you got an NFL team. We're going back to the sports analogies, Jarvis. Here we go. If you got an NFL team that has a lot of success, let's say Bill Belichick staff or whoever it is, um, people come looking to you know, kind of poach those assistant coaches. Why? Because they're coming from a culture of success um, and – I don't wanna lose team members, but I would love to have a team that we're developing talent um, and, those, and folks could stay in our team forever, but they're thinking bigger and better because the team has had success, they felt empowered, they're always looking forward. It would be really meaningful to me if uh, team members, um, after we developed that intimate connection, you know, really kind of went on to the, the, next, the next level. The other thing I'll say is, I think as a leader of a team, you, you really have to proceed as if you have nothing to prove. Um, I think if you're always trying to prove something or make a point so you're looking good or, or get credit, um, your team's not going to operate as, as, it, as well as it could, and you're not going to have that intimate connection. I think organizations that have a credit culture where people try to get credit for things. Um, generally, I don't think do as well. It's not that we shouldn't um, recognize good work. And all of that, but I, I think at the same time, if the if everyone's goal and what they say and the projects they take on is to get credit, I, I just think you're not going to be as successful. Um, and the last thing I'll say is is fostering that intimate connection. I think also comes from transparency um, and being as transparent, um, you know, really transparent with your teams, uh, and and not and you know say what you know and say what you don't know and, and don't bluff. You know, when you're in medical school. You can pick out the bluffers pretty quickly. You know, I always admired a medical student that had to present a case, and then if they were asked a question. You know, they just, and they didn't know it. They said, "I don't know." You know, um, I think in a lot of professional settings, people try to bluff, or you know, people are talking about something, everybody's nodding in agreement when in reality half the room doesn't know what anybody's talking about or what those acronyms mean. And so, um, you know, w- what we try to do is say, "Look, we're not bluffing here. Let's let's not act like we know something when we don't." Um, Let's uh, not have power gradients and use titles. Um, let's build a team we're proud of that can move on to bigger and better things. And, and you know, I'm learning those things every day. I, I don't have it all figured out, i um, You know, I, I'm, I, my team gives me feedback when I've done well, and they give me feedback when I haven't done so well. But, but hopefully through all of that, we grow together and the patients get what they need.
1: No, I think, again, that, that was um, – exceptional feedback and what I heard in each of those examples you shared there David is is really it connects back to culture Um, you know establishing the culture for the power gradients and you know acknowledging um, the everybody else's efforts not kind of taking it upon myself Um, and even your your points about the NFL team Um, I, I was quickly searching I believe it was Steve Walsh with the 49ers that may have even kind of made it the cool thing to show the success of a good leader and other teams starting to poach those coaches. And nowadays it is the Bill Belichicks and other teams poaching the coaches. Um, But that to me, I I would love personally to see that kind of be the standard um, in healthcare from when I first entered the industry. Um, my first organization I worked at, I, I just saw incredible leaders all over the place, but they were all kind of happy being at that one organization where it would be been nice to also kind of see them bloom out. So I, I think that's a, a, a interesting opportunity for impacting culture. Um, let me ask any, any thoughts. I mean, one or two points, like what does it take to impact culture? Is that something that starts at um, the C level or, you know, from a suits like, uh, like your colleagues like to tag you about now, <laughs> or is that something that comes from the bottom up? Is it kind of the revolt where the, our staff frontline members are saying, you know, we just want better for our patients and for our teams. Um, any thoughts about where culture change starts?
0: Yeah. You know, I, I think it's some of both of those things. Certainly the C suite's got to be heavily involved and, you know, at, at no bon health, I can tell you, we, we have, um, a really amazing executive leadership team. If you ever have a chance, peruse our website and look at that team and the talent on it and the diversity of it. Um, and um, they really set set the tone for everybody else. Um, and then it's up to us to say, hey, we see the tone. We see the um, the mission, vision, and values of our organization. We see how we, we expect to treat people. And then we've got to consistently do that every day you know it's one thing to put it on a bumper sticker it's another thing to day in and day out be consistent about it so our executive team that c-suite they, they provide the vision and then it's up to us on a daily basis to roll that out there and I, I think you know in most days we do that pretty well and there are days you think Mac you know that wasn't the culture we wanted Let, let's get back at it tomorrow it's it's a start and stop kind of thing and um, it's hard to maintain culture right with the way the healthcare changes um, and the, all the forces that happen and nursing shortages and, you know, people coming and going. And, and so it, it's a real challenge, I think probably for every healthcare system, but, um, you know, hopefully we, we can set the vision um, from our leaders and then on a daily basis, just try to be consistent about it and, and um, kind of maintain what we think our standard ought to be for our patients.
1: Now that, that's, again, just exceptional feedback. I will highlight your, your point that you highlighted there around the diversity. Um, and, and what I like when I, again, had a chance to sit in on a presentation with your CEO a couple of weeks ago and um, doing more research to learn about Novant, at least to, to prepare for our conversation, David, diversity amongst your C-suite isn't just the traditional diversity, gender, religion, or anything to that nature. You guys actually tagged a lot of leaders from non-healthcare industries and brought in diverse Business leaders and business cultures into your organization, too. Um, has that had uh, a significant impact on the things you guys are doing now, or, or what has that experience been like, um, you know, partnering with non healthcare leaders to push the healthcare organization forward?
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. I think um, it's been awesome because I think, as you know, in healthcare, we're kind of dinosaurs, we're behind the curve that other, other industries are in. Um, on a lot of issues, so to bring those outside um, folks in or folks who haven't worked in healthcare before, I think is really beneficial. I think it also elevates the importance of the roles that those of us who are in healthcare, you know, the the physician leaders, to partner with those folks, right? Because we don't, you know, we're not making automobiles here, and we can't treat it as if we are. Right? There's a sacredness to healthcare. You know, putting a seat in a car is a lot different than bringing a baby into the world. Um, selling a car on a lot is a lot different than um, helping someone die with dignity, right? And so um, I think what we do is we, is we bring those kind of team members in. We learn so many new innovative ways to do business and operations. And in return, what we have to show them is here's how healthcare is unique. And there is a sacredness to it. Um, and, and if we lose that, then we, we can't be like every other industry. Um, and and so to your point, um, I think it's bringing those folks in as our executive team has done is really pushing us forward, and 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 we have a lot of forward-thinking people that think about technology, and um, and kind of what's on the horizon for us instead of business as usual. And that's really exciting.
1: That's awesome. I'm glad we had a chance to uh, just highlight that. And what my real hope is, is, you know, again, as we get this episode pushed out into the podcast universe, any of our audience or the leaders that plug in, um, they can key in on so many of the points that you shared around leadership and drawing those intimate connections and that diversity within leaders, um, leadership teams to create the right culture. Um, to take back to their organizations because just a little bit of research and things that I've learned about you all, um, you're doing some pretty cool stuff. So i um, excited for, for what you guys are bringing to the industry in that, that respect. Um, next question I have for you, David, is, uh, and this kind of now, I guess, plays right into it. I was setting myself up right here, but uh, what are some of the changes that are going on in the healthcare industry that you're personally excited about? And what road do you see quality and safety professionals plan to promote or support us longevity?
0: Yeah. And what I will say here, I think other guests of yours have probably said this too. It's really around artificial intelligence and data. I think that's something we're all really facing right now. Um, these tools are coming fast and furious. Um, if you're in a healthcare system, you're probably being approached by a variety of vendors who want to sell you these products. Um, and I think, really what it's really important for the quality professional to say, yes, these are really important tools, but which ones are the ones we need, how are we utilizing them and how are we guaranteeing that they are pushing, um, to make safety and quality even better than it already is. Uh, our chief medical officer, uh, Dr. Eric Eskiaglu likes to say that he doesn't think artificial intelligence is going to replace physicians. But he does think that physicians who don't use artificial intelligence will get replaced by physicians who do. And I think it's true of healthcare systems too. I think, um, you know, is this, you know, as we evaluate these things, is this tool just giving me information? Is it guaranteeing some outcome? And I think for me personally, part of what I see my role is as a physician is how is this thing going to incorporate into workflow? right? Um, Physicians are already frustrated tremendously about electronic health records. I can't hand them an artificial intelligence tool that, um, you know, that's going to make their lives harder. You know, it's better if it runs in the background. It's better if we show and prove that, um, you know, it makes a difference for patient care. It can't be one more cumbersome thing. And so uh, I think quality professionals in general have to assist in understanding what these tools do, how they're gonna be utilized, uh, how they affect workflow, and ultimately do they deliver on what they're supposed to deliver? There's some amazing things happening. um, And you know, the quality professional role is very important in in how those things get utilized.
1: All right, perfect. I I wanna dig a little bit deeper on your thoughts with that question, but I'm gonna try to maybe pair it into the next question, which is, um, how can the healthcare industry become a more attractive place for ambitious quality professionals to grow their careers? But um, to your point, um, with artificial intelligence and you know powerful data and analytics, are there additional um, skills or training knowledge gaps that us quality professionals also need to be prepared for in order to grow our careers within healthcare in the same in the same mindset?
0: yeah that's a that's a great question i think um listen if you are working safety quality of any kind and you like a challenge and you're not afraid of change then healthcare is for you Uh, it changes almost on a daily basis if you like something fast-paced constantly moving constantly new challenges um, it is the place for you and there's definitely a seat at the table i think developing your skills around um, at least having a good understanding of data. You know, I'm not a data professional, right? I'm a physician who has an interest in epidemiology. I'm a physician who tries to understand data tools and how they're used. I have people on my team that are way smarter than me and this kind of stuff. But I think accepting data as a tool, and we've tried to, um, you know, quality professionals need to know that, but we also have to message that to team members. So I'm involved in our program. We onboard physicians and other kind, other providers, uh, APPs and other providers. And we, from the second they come work in our organization, we're trying to um, really give them the mindset, you talk about culture, really the culture that we use data here and we can't be afraid of it, right? And it's funny, it's, it's almost generational. I think younger physicians or providers that come in tend to kind of accept, yeah, we're gonna have data. Older physicians is maybe a little stretch. And we we kind of have a a running joke at Novant about the stages of data grief. Um, And that's not our idea. I've heard it at several meetings, but I have a slide I show at our physician onboarding. Um, So you know, right when people come into the organization, we go, look, there are stages of data grief, right? And it's just like the stages of grief. There's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, the same stages in terms of the, you know, in the denial stage in, in data is, you know, we show people data and they say, well, this can't be right. Our patients are sicker. Our hospital's bigger. Our hospital's smaller. Don't you know we have this challenge? And then we can move to anger and, you know, which is, you know, how dare you say we're giving bad care? And then we're in bargaining, you know, can we present this data in a different way so we look better? And then there's a depression that comes, which is nothing can be done about all this. And then finally there's acceptance. And so all that's to say is the quality professionals who think they want something fast moving, um, and you know, healthcare is for them. Think about data, understand it, understand the tools that are used to present it. There's power BI and Cognos and click and all these different tools that are out there. I don't think you necessarily have to be the data experts, but you have to understand its importance to modern healthcare. So anything that, that grows that in your skill set, I think would be important.
1: All right. Perfect. And, um, I- I almost always, when I'm really good about it, um, I, I like to tee up our shows with um, a clip and, you know, I'll highlight you as our, our upcoming guest and I'm probably going to use everything you said there as a clip because that was so spot on and I think relevant to um, us quality professionals, but even just to healthcare you know, organizations, the understanding and impact around data, I think is key. So um, that was definitely, uh, I'll, I'll call that clip worthy right there. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Perfect. Well, David, we are right there. Um, you're doing great, but I want to move us into a part of the show called the two minute drill, very much our um, rapid fire Q and a session, but i um, always kind of do a quick pulse check, make sure uh, you're ready to go. And then we're going to plow through these next few questions for you. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. All right, perfect. Well, uh, David, the next question I have for you is something of a two-parter. First, I would love for you to share with our quality people something about your current role that inspires you to do your best. But then, also share with us how do you inspire others within your organization?
0: You know, I think what inspires me is that you know knowing the decisions we're making are having a profound effect on patients, and because I actually still see patients, that's always in my head. I think sometimes when you're removed. From that, uh, maybe you forget it, um, and and so I think that's that's really important. I, I tell our team sometimes, you know, you're really the guardian angels of these folks, and it's unfortunate that you're not going to get the face-to-face thanks from patients when you keep them safe, you prevent them from having a bad event, you prevent them from getting an infection, you prevent them from getting a fall, you make sure they get what they need when they leave the hospital. You make sure they have a good experience at a clinic that's safe and they're getting quality care. Um, You know, you're really guardian angels and you have to be, you have to accept the fact that those people, hundreds, maybe thousands of people you're helping will never know who you are, um, but that you helped them. You know, as a physician, you know, I help somebody and they can tell me to my face and I have this gratification from that. This is different than that. Um, so knowing that that's the case and that we can help thousands of people that, that really inspires us, I think, to, to do our best to help them.
1: All right. And you mentioned earlier, I guess, being a uh, Marine, Brad, I almost see us as quality professionals kind of in the mindset of a Marine that when things are going well, people don't know that we're around. And then when things are going bad, we're the first on the line. So, um, just to, to draw a connection with maybe your, some of your prior statements there.
0: Yeah, Absolutely.
1: Next question I have for you, David, is um, what is the best piece of career advice that you've ever received?
0: You know, the best piece, I'll never forget this, was the first night of my intern year, and I was the intern on call in the ICU, and I'd gone to medical school there, and so they they figured I knew where the bathroom was at least, and so, you know, I'm, I'm walking around in scrubs, I got this giant beeper on my waistband back when we wore big beepers, and I'm thinking, am I gonna have to do CPR on somebody tonight, am I gonna have to code them, Do I remember my ACLS training Um, do I have to go declare someone dead and I will tell you the first night I did all of those things uh, but I had an upper-level resident his name was Chris Conley I think he's a cardiologist now and he was walking me to the ICU to begin probably the most terrifying night of my life and uh, he said hey priest you don't have to be that smart to do this job you just have to care and keep up with the details And I never forgot that. I think it's true of every job I've ever had. And I think it's true of life. You know, I think in some ways talent's overrated, right? Every job I've ever had, if I just cared and kept up with the details and consistently showed up, then good things happen. So I never forget that. So thank you, Chris, for telling me that. I will never forget it.
1: All right. See, now I have a conflict. I think that was exceptionally clip worthy as well. So <laughs> we, we may have all kinds of uh, highlights of your show going. Um, no, that, that's a very uh, insightful advice. I like that a lot. Seriously. Uh, next question I have for you, um, talking about doing jobs. If you could trade jobs with anyone in your organization, with whom would it be and why?
0: You know, I'm going to totally cop out Jarvis because I don't want to trade jobs with anybody in all honesty. I think um, infectious disease medicine in my mind is the best. I'm totally biased and there are other types of doctors that tell me I'm full of it. Um, I think it's the most interesting. I think it fits my skill set. I think I'm in the role that in a lot of ways I was made to play. Um, if you're talking about any job in the history of the world that I would want, I would. if we're going to go on the sports theme, I would have wanted to be a strong safety for the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, I'm 46 years old. I don't think that dream's coming true. And it wouldn't have come true even when I was 26 years old. But if I could dream for a day, that's what I would have done. Um, but in terms of my current role, I love it. I have my hand in infectious disease medicine, but I have it in all sorts of other things. And um, it's pretty exciting. So, and some of those other jobs seem hard. I don't think I want them.
1: <laughs> no, uh, I'd say that was not a cop-out. If anything, that was like the right answer good answer right there <laughs> if nothing else the Dallas Cowboys could definitely use a really good um, safety right now too so yeah absolutely 46 or not so <laughs> all right uh David what is um your go-to website or mobile application for executing on the work that you lead um I'll tell you I think someone may have mentioned some other cast um we've really started to utilize
0: Microsoft Teams Um, and I didn't really know what that was a year ago. Um, We, as a collaboration tool, you know, when I came into this role, um, I I partnered with some other um, great team members in our organization to look at our data governance, and it was really all over the board. We had silos of data. Um, They were all using different data tools. We had what we call them institutes with service line leaders who couldn't get their data in all one place, and so we started using Microsoft Teams as a tool to put everything in one place. Um, so you know, we broke our data into financial data, safety and quality data, population health data, growth and strategy data, human experience data, kind of artificial buckets on, on one level, but at least starting to put everything in there and then allowing our teams to collaborate in the tool. You know, it's really cut down on our email use. Everybody knows where the data is. I don't have to go find it in an email stream somewhere. Um, we're still working through that. Uh, it's not perfect. Um, We've talked to Microsoft about some of the things we'd love to see with that tool, but it's been our very first kind of baby step into a collaborative platform where leaders can interact with our data teams, where we can store and and file information that everybody needs access to, um, and and really get all the data in one place. We're working to kind of, you know, really get that data to integrate um, more effectively, but as a first step, Microsoft Teams has really been a a go-to tool for us.
1: No, that's awesome. Um, so you are talking to an extreme uh Microsoft Teams advocate. Um, I, I I say that Microsoft Teams is like uh if SharePoint and Twitter had a baby, <laughs> Microsoft Teams is what you get. But it it is an amazing tool for collaboration. So thank you for highlighting. I, I'm I'm excited that you guys are are plugging in with that. Uh if you could please. Share with our quality people a professional society and a professional conference that you think is a value add.
0: Yeah, and, and being fairly new to the work, um, I probably don't have the, the breadth of experience with a lot of these conferences. I can tell you two conferences our team um, uh, has had some success at and enjoyed learning from. Uh, we have partnerships with Vizient um, in terms of uh, hospital improvement and collaboration and they have a um, connections education summit in the fall each year and they have an executive summit in, the, in February of each year and we've had I've been to some of those and our team members have been to some of those and we're, we're just starting our journey with the busy clinical database some of your listeners may use that tool um, it's really allowing us to see our data in a different way um, we're popping the hood and looking around and seeing where we have opportunities uh, because now we can benchmark ourselves against other systems. And so the conferences associated with that work have been very helpful. We've learned a lot as you go speak with other healthcare systems who are at different places in their journey. They may be ahead of us in some things, behind us in some things, but Vizion as an entity that we've interacted with um, has been super useful for us.
1: Let me, uh, let me go off script with that question a little bit deeper, but um Would you have any professional societies or professional conferences from your world uh, of infectious diseases or epidemiology also to throw out? Because, again, with with that additional skill set you are bring to the show today, I would love to highlight that for quality people just to to become a little bit more familiar with as well.
0: Yeah, it's a good call, Jarvis. Actually, um, ID week, which just happened about three weeks ago in Washington, we actually had the privilege of presenting a study there. that's the Infectious Diseases Society of America co-meeting with Shea, the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America, and all the, basically all the ID groups, um, kind of a common meeting. Um, That's a great meeting. And it was interesting to be, I've attended it at different points in my career. It was interesting to attend it as a safety and quality person because it changes the lens that you use while you're there. Some of the talks I went to were just my own selfish interest in some infectious disease topic, but I also skewed my my, you know, the talks I went to toward things that affected our safety and quality programs or measuring metrics or those kind of things. So, um, and it's such a large meeting and so many different kinds of talks and there's so many posters and everything that you can really pull in some quality work around hospital card infections or vaccination programs or metric creating um, that you can get a lot out of. So ID week is every year in the fall, I think in 2020, it's in Philadelphia, but you can go to idsociety.org and, and see where those meetings are.
1: All right, perfect. And and David, I'll share this with you. Um, one of our recent show releases with uh, Shruti Ramachandran, she is a quality professional and she has a public health background. She runs a program up in New York around program management and evaluation, but specific to HIV patients. So Um, That, to me, was a really good show highlighting, you know, the connections between public health, quality patient safety work in our our hospital environments, and um, just a really good one. If you haven't plugged in, definitely would recommend checking out Yeah, I've not heard that,
0: that. I would definitely listen to that because all those things are right
1: up my alley. Absolutely, and that that was my first insight as well, just connecting those two because I'm quality, and now I started seeing the public health kind of aspect, so um, perfect. Uh, Next question I have for you, David, is... If you could, please recommend one book for our quality people, but share with us why you are recommending it.
0: So I'm going to cheat on this one too, Jarvis. I'm going to recommend a couple maybe. Um,
1: Go for it. The more the merrier. One is <laughs> one,
0: probably everybody who's listening to this is read, but it's The First 90 Days by Michael Watkins.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And someone recommended that when I took this role. And it was uncanny. Like it was like the dude was in the room for meetings I'd had. Like, I was like, It was unbelievable how very specific things and challenges I was running into was in this book. Um, It's a classic. I think a lot of people have read it. The First 90 Days by Michael Watkins.
1: Um, And let me let me jump in on that. So for our quality people who read that, just know now you don't just read it, but literally have a notebook next to you and take some notes because you're going to come up with that strategy for the first 90 days.
0: Yes, absolutely. And, and seriously, when you see this thing and you read it, you're like, it is unbelievable how specific details are in that book. Exactly what I was experiencing, which made me think someone has you know, figured out a way to codify this and get it in a book that makes sense. It's incredibly helpful. And I'll be honest, I kept reading it beyond the first 90 days because there are so <laughs> many principles that were helpful to me. Uh, that, that's a great book. The other one, if you're um, in, Safety and Quality, is Zero Harm. It's edited by Craig Clapper and uh, James Merlino and Carol Stockmeyer. That's a real nice review of healthcare-related safety and quality principles, particularly if you were like me and somewhat new to these kind of roles and still learning. It's almost one of those things you could read it and then go back at a later date and just read a particular chapter when you run into a challenge. Um, so that, that would, that's called Zero Harm, um, Clapper, Merlino, and Stockmeyer. The other thing I'll say is, I, I think there's a lot of utility in just reading in general and reading things that have nothing to do with safety and quality. It keeps your mind agile, it gives you other ideas. You may think outside the box. You talked about us having team members coming from outside of healthcare. I'm a big biography reader. I love reading big David McCullough biographies. I'm reading Eric Metaxas's book on Martin Luther right now. Um, I, I have wide ranges of reading, so um, I would I would encourage that really frees my mind up to think in a different way. And so I, I try to read both, you know, books from healthcare industry and outside as well.
1: All right, awesome. I love that. And last question for you, David. You've made it through the entire um, show, the entire interview flawlessly, but this is kind of the make or break. So just give you <laughs> give you the heads up, but. Um, With this question, I'd love to try to get you to reflect on your past while also looking forward to your future. Um, So let's say that you're able to send one text message to yourself 10 years into the past and one text message to yourself 10 years into the future. Take a second to think about it, but what would you communicate in each one of those messages?
0: Yeah, so I think if I was talking to myself 10 years in the past, um, I would say you're still around. Good. That's good um and i think i would say develop your active listening skills um you know i think we in our culture you know when we have conversations we do of course we do so much through technology now we have conversations i feel like um and i'm sure i've done this in my life you're you're having a conversation the other person's talking you're not really ingesting what they're saying or taking into consideration you're just waiting for there to be silence so you can talk and i'm in a lot of meetings that are like that where there's not there's not they're just talking and people waiting for gaps. And I bet 10 years ago, I did that more than I should have. So I would say right now, develop active listening skills. You don't have to get credit for this. Be quiet. Let other people talk. Um, you know, there was an old adage in, I just, this just occurred to me an Old adage in medicine. I'll probably butcher it, but it was something like, uh, look three times, think twice, speak once. Um, I saw that in a, I think a radiology reading room one time, and I think that applies to this, right? Active listen, look three times, think twice, only speak once. um, Talk less, listen more is what I would tell myself, you know, ten years ago. Um, The text of my future self, I would, I would wonder, have you joined the circus? Because who knows what I'll be doing in ten years? Are you still doing this or not doing that? But if you're still doing this and you haven't joined the circus. Um, I would say, I hope that, you know, in an age of new technology, big data, non-traditional healthcare disruptors in our industry, artificial intelligence, financial stress, electronic health records, through all of that, I would hope and pray the next 10 years that you have still stood up for the patient, that you still defended those who couldn't defend themselves, that above all, the patient was your priority, and that you did it with a sense of ethics and dignity, and and a really a dignity for human life, and 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 that we aren't these aren't automobiles; they're people. Um, and I hope, while you probably didn't get it right every day, I hope ten years from now you can say, you know, you you've built on those principles and you've continued to care for, you know, patients whether they know who you are or not. Um, that that would be my hope.
1: All right. Well, much much respect for both of those um, takeaways. And who knows, ten years from now, you know, we might be delivering care in circuses. Healthcare is just changing. Yeah, right. <laughs> healthcare is changing just that much. You just don't know. Ten years from I don't now,
0: know. you might be interviewing a robot in ten years, Jarvis.
1: There you, go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the, the healthcare robot cast. I'll be at
0: the beach. You talk to the robot. Let me know how it goes.
1: Awesome uh, David, uh, Dr. Priest, David, thank you so much, it's David.
0: You know, we, we're
1: title free, man. We're title David. free. I love it. But, um, no, seriously, thank you for, um, thank you for saying yes to the invite first and foremost, but thank you for just dropping so much incredible knowledge and insight, um, on me since I'm the first to listen to this, but definitely on our audience. Um, as soon as we get this show out, I know everyone's going to gravitate towards it. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, let's end today with you giving our quality people just that, that last parting piece of advice. Um, please do share if there's a great way that they can connect and follow you, um, through social media and then we'll officially sign off.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of your other guests talked about this too. I, I would say the parting shot is be optimistic. Um, we got a lot going for us despite the challenges. And so if you're having a bad day, just think, you know, it's going to be all right. I'm not necessarily a overly optimistic person. I'm also not a pessimistic person. I've found myself having to develop my optimism skills uh, with all the changes happening in healthcare. And so, be optimistic. It's going to be okay. Take care of your patients. Put them first. And um, it's it's, uh, it's an exciting time to be in healthcare. And uh, I don't do a lot of social media, despite knowing um, hashtag what could possibly go wrong, uh, but I am on LinkedIn. So uh, I would welcome you to reach out to me let me know you heard this. And uh, we love collaborating here. I love commiserating with people. Um, so I, I, I'd love to hear from the listeners.
1: All right, wonderful. Again, David, thank you so much for everything with this interview, and to our quality people everywhere, thank you for listening and making us a part of your day. This is Jarvis and David signing off.
0: Thank you for listening to the Healthcare Quality Cast, brought to you by The Quality Coaching Company. If you love the Healthcare Quality Cast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review. Until next time.